0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host Mike, and today's episode is on special forces and special operations, which is something that we've vaguely talked about. Why are you looking at me that way? <laughs> That's so bizarre. So, <laughs> today's
1: podcast. Today,
0: is
1: special forces. We're not
0: going to do. We're not. You know what? We're not doing is no more redos. I'm just going to edit. I'm not going to edit any of these. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> obviously, Turd McGee is on co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Hohan here <Seriously>, see what's <laughs> up Kurt what's up everybody hey you know we've been we've actually got a couple inquiries we've had a lot of people ask us about kind of like all these questions that are encompassed into special operations and what are green Berets versus Rangers and it's kind of you know it's funny is it's not directly in path or in line with what survival is but it, it has to do with education on kind of where we're coming from and uh, where our mindset is and our physical capabilities came from. So I think it's it's fitting to have an episode of that, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, thanks for your input.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're you're a treasure
0: yeah. trove of input today. Um, so hey, before we start this podcast, you know the podcast again is in educating you guys on special operations and kind of like the background of me and Kurt specifically, and kind of our experiences and what hey, what the fuck is a Green Beret? People think a Green beret is a hat, it's a hat, a piece of headgear. Ooh, you talk about that guy too. Talk about the uh, Tad thing.
1: Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah, that guy. Ooh, that's going to, you're yeah. going to be fired up. By I'm, the end be, of this I'm already podcast, angry so. right now. My blood pressure is rising.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, before we started out though, I, I want to kind of talk about in the intro some of the stuff that uh, I've been listening to recently. You know, I, I'm, re- I'm reading a couple books. One, I'm reading Outliers. It's taken me forever to read that book because I read it like a page a night before I go to bed and then I fall asleep and then have to reread it because I can't remember what I read. Um, I'm also reading, again, the book Untethered Soul by Singer. And Untethered Soul is a book about kind of your subconscious and that like voice in the back of your head and kind of getting back to uh, reality and getting back to what's important in life. It's a really good book that I recommend. Something else I've been doing, and I just talked to Kurt about this, is I always listen to the Tim Ferriss podcast, but a buddy of mine recently gave me an episode, and I'll post this episode up, but it's an episode with Sebastian Younger. If you guys don't know who Sebastian Younger is, he used to be a war correspondent or war journalist. And recently, I think a few years ago, him and his uh, his photographer were in – Libya and his photographer buddy was killed in front of him and ever since then he came back and he stopped doing any kind of overseas work. But Sebastian is known for his books, which include the most recent, The Tribe, The Book War, uh, his, his documentary, which is called Restrepo, all, all great insights and outlooks and perspectives on kind of the American soldier experience uh, in, in combat. The most recent episode that I I watched had a a lot to do with the psychology of people, men and women, and their relationship to their community and their tribe and their their belonging, and also directly related to PTSD. Some of the narratives that stood out to me is, one, he he talked about a special forces detachment, like a MACD-SOG detachment. That was, I don't know if it was an active song. It could have been a Mike Strike Force. Anyways, it was a special forces.
1: A team in Vietnam, right?
0: Yeah, an A team in Vietnam. And it was about 20 guys at a remote fire base. And they had two psychologists that were infilled or, you know, they got dropped off at this remote fire base. And so they decided to start testing their cortisol levels every hour to measure their levels of stress when confronted with information that they were going to get an impending attack. And what's interesting to 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 hear is the fact that the special forces guys, well, let me talk about the the doc the uh, the lieutenant first. There was a second lieutenant, first or second lieutenant that was in charge of the element back in Vietnam, a commanding officer could have came straight out of college, been assigned, and then he was the commanding officer of the Green Berets or the special forces guys who are who are enlisted he could have been in charge of those guys as the commanding officer. Well, they measured his cortisol levels when they found out the information. and
1: About an impending attack. About right? an in- impending attack. Right? So something stressful was getting ready to happen.
0: Yeah. And so you would think, just like they identified, the cortisol levels were very high when they found out, when the lieutenant found out about the impending attack. And leading up to the actual time in which they were supposed to get attacked, it spiked and you know, the attack was an impending attack against a battalion of North Vietnamese, which is about 500 soldiers to 20. So almost impending doom. But what's what's interesting about this whole thing is they actually also determined that the special forces guys on the ground, their cortisol level when confronted with the information of an impending attack actually decreased.
1: These were guys that these were experienced guys, yeah, right. Ex- these experienced, are guys hardened, teams with probably multiple combat rotations up to that point.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So, I, I think what they identified was that hey, these guys don't have uh, this level of cortisol. In fact, they were calmer leading up to the attack, but after the attack, I think their cortisol levels got back to normal, normal stress. And what the theory is, I think this is Sebastian's theory, is that. When when they had a plan of action to execute because it's almost like for us for the the mission or the criteria you're like hey you're in it here's the mission plan for it and execute it we automatically go into this plan of action and because we understand that level of higher thinking and execution and it's part of what we've trained for it's our comfort zone mm-hmm. and so you know we we talk about this I've mentioned it in a couple write ups. It's being comfortable with chaos because we operate in chaos. Anybody from the outside looking into that situation would go, that's chaotic. That's crazy. And then we look at a situation and go, no, not at all. It's it's actually a process. And so there's something to take away from that, which is I think that you know how we teach in survival. When, when you look at people who live versus people who die, the people who live typically have Some reference of training or information or knowledge and understanding in the back of their head. When you don't have that, in the absence of that, you have anxiety because it's unknown. Another interesting statistic, and I haven't told you this yet, but a recent statistic is that, you know, 10%, this is from Sebastian Younger as well, but 10% of the overall military, 10% are combat arms, you know, and typically find themselves on the front line of combat or in direct combat. Last year, the VA statistics, 50% of the entire armed forces applied for disability for PTSD. Hmm. So somewhere in there, there's a, you know, a dissolution or there's a, a misunderstanding or, or something that's not normal. And, and so 40% of the people who applied had never actually been involved in a specific traumatic event. And Sebastian's theory was: these these are young men and women who come back, who are used to being in this. He calls it like a platoon dynamic, right, where you're uh, you're immersed into combat with your friends. You might be at a remote base, but you're not you're not dealing in direct combat, and you're used to people being around you, this support network. Mm. And then you get home, and they're suffering from depression, anxiety, which are symptoms of PTSD, and you they're don't getting have diagnosed. That
1: support network anymore?
0: Yeah, it's it's gone. And so we, you know, me and Kurt have kind of talked about this as transitional issues. These transitional issues are often affiliated with these symptoms that are recognized as PTSD, but they, they can spiral you into uh, depression and they can give you anxiety because it's not the norm. And that plays into his book, Tribe, which I recommend. I've actually haven't read it. I think it's an interesting subject matter and I'm definitely going to it's on my to do list of things to read. But it's just all interesting, man, and the whole dynamic of thinking about post-traumatic stress, thinking about clans and warrior culture and kind of how we are in our society now. You know, uh, one more last interesting thing that I heard took away from the podcast, which is, you know, I recommend this episode, period. But he was talking about men and women and their roles in World War II. And when, you know, it's actually, there's some statistics he throws out, but the, the general concept is. During war and crisis situations, people bonded together and the rates of psychological disorder and dysfunction and recorded mental institution statistics lowered. You know, one's probably by default of them actually being at war. But there's something to say about that, which is that we are a society that is slowly, if not some would say rapidly, getting away from the roots of who we are as human beings, as natural human beings, which is, you know, he taught. Oh man, so many interesting things. But one thing he talked about is kids, children are now being raised and put in their own rooms, and as babies, and they're given their own rooms. Well, in in cultures outside of these technological, modern uh, society cultures, where they live in tribes, they all still live. Together. They all live together in the same room, and they have this human contact. And he actually quoted he actually quoted a statistic that said in these tribes they have ninety percent of their childhood they have body to body skin to skin contact meaning they're ninety percent of the time Mm -hmm. they're being touched by a parent they're being uh, taken care of they're being nurtured versus seventeen percent in modern society I mean as a kid think about as a we're, we're, we're primates right as a kid in a in a austere environment, to be put alone by yourself, you wouldn't survive. Right, and so to be close to the mother hen or to the the the, the parents uh, is hugely important. And I think that's overall intimacy, overall uh, social gathering. So what we're doing through technology, through everything else, is we're separating ourselves from really what we are intended to be, which is social, naturally, right? Naturally habitated, uh, you know immersed, uh, engulfed social creatures of behavior, and it's causing all these fucking mental issues. I mean, the happiest times that I'm most happy is when I'm with like-minded human beings, when I'm in these situations where we're working towards the same objective, and summing it up, that's what warfare is. Like war for us was these uh, epic adventures with our brothers, and then we didn't have time to focus and internalize on ourselves. So it's almost like the best therapy ever, ever, uh, ever written, which is the therapy of getting outside your own consciousness. And now what we're doing as a society is we're further isolating ourselves and then we're communicating to our, the voice inside of our head and it's driving us fucking insane. At least that's my take.
1: It's a good. All great points, man. I did appreciate your feedback. <laughs> <laughs> You're all over it. Like a hobo and a ham sandwich today. <laughs> Um, my, my mind is in is uh, not not because because uh, college is crushing your brain. Yeah, college is crushing my brain, but um, I'm doing uh, you know a couple things for uh, business right now. So my mind is going in different directions. I think the cool thing is is that Mike and I are constantly working on different things, and then we're coming together and talking about all these different things, and and that makes the environment or the environment at Fieldcraft uh, really. Interesting and uh, a good time. I, I felt like there was going to be stressful in there. No, <laughs> I thought you were going to no. say stressful. <laughs> no, yeah, we wouldn't be doing this if it was stressful. That's true. <laughs> this is like the hardest thing we've
0: done today is recording a podcast.
1: <laughs> so let's let's talk
0: about our subject matter today. This is a transition. So Andrew, you could edit this as a transition. You could even leave this in here. Yeah. we don't care. Talking about special operations. Let, let's talk specifically about. Special Forces. Okay. One, let's first define what a Green Beret is. Like, what, what is a Green Beret and what are the Green Beret missions?
1: So, uh, Green Berets, um, I'm sure if you've done any kind of background research, you can look up, you know, what a Green Beret is. And in my mind, going through all the, the doctrinal stuff when we were going through school was a, an expert in unconventional warfare, right? So, did you say doctrinal? Yeah, is that even a word? <laughs> I, think it, I think that's a, a combination of doctrine
0: and, no, <laughs> and nocturnal, which would be like you, you do oh, doctrine. Okay, at night.
1: all right. <laughs> we'll go with it, though. All right. <laughs> um, back on track. Uh, so, an expert in unconventional warfare, um, there's a lot of mission sets that, that fall in there, right? Direct action, special reconnaissance, foreign internal defense, uh, unconventional warfare is one of those in there as well basically uh that guy it's funny when we were in the military guys would always say that we were the uh, jacks of all trades the masters of nothing right um we get picked uh or selected assessed and selected off of our uh you know our intelligence and uh our ability to be put in an environment uh that is an uncertain one but i think one of the interesting uh takeaways um, at least in my mind, especially the stuff we were just talking about, is uh, being put in an, an absolutely uncertain environment and having the confidence to know that whatever the situation is, that you're going to come out on top. And that, you know, that's not a characteristic that's just specific to a Green Beret. Um, when I look at our, all of our brothers in the special operations community, one of the, the resounding things or the, <clears throat> the most common things that I see with guys is uh, this confidence about them that no matter what situation they're put in, they're gonna come out on top. And it's not to be confused with arrogance, right? Absolutely not. I it's I I know that that, that could sound arrogant in a way, but I think it's you know, it's the amount of training and the time that you spend putting into your to, to your career path. I mean the schooling, the realistic training, and then, you know, the bottom line is the global war on terror has been going for, you know, whatever we're calling it today, but but GWAT's been going for 17 years. And um, there are a lot of guys out there with a shit ton of combat experience, and they know that when they step into a situation, um, you know, that they've experienced something potentially similar, and, and they have the course of action to come out on top. How does one, if they're in the military, how do they go about becoming a Green Beret? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's two different paths um, that I saw while I was on active duty. The first path is the one that I took, which, um, you know, some of you guys know uh, my story, Mike's story, obviously. And that started off with joining the infantry and then through experience uh, and working with special operations on a combat deployment. That's kind of the, the educational process, if you will. Uh, or at least what helped make me decide to go to special forces. Um, There is another path uh, that some people don't, you know, that you might not know about, but it's called the 18 X-ray program. And that is a program that was designed uh, to pick guys up off of the street, uh, if you will. So they go into a recruiting office. Um, There's, you know, a series of tests they have to pass um, along with some other criteria, and then they sign up for an 18 x-ray contract. And obviously they have, they go through a prep course. Um, well, first they start off and they go to Fort Benning and they go to, you know, infantry basic uh, airborne school. And then they come to Fort Bragg and they go through a whole prep course. And then they get their chance to go to assessment and selection. Um, their, their road, those two paths kind of intersect at assessment and selection. And, and obviously Uh, you're going through that and you're being assessed and if you, you know, show the right characteristics, physically you're capable, um, you know, and the other things that the cadre are looking at, at at assessment and selection, uh, then you get selected. And that's just the first kind of gate, if you will, um, of, of getting to attend what we call the SFQC, which is a special forces qualification course. So... You know, a lot of people are confused about the
0: special forces, the actual job. So an SF tab isn't, it's special forces isn't a qualification, right? It's a change
1: of job completely. It's a different branch. Right, exactly. I mean, it's a completely different uh, job set inside of the military. Yeah, I think a lot of people are confused because they think, hey,
0: this guy's special forces qualified. And yeah, it's referred to that in some ways, but you know, a, a Green Beret, a Special Forces soldier, is, number one, is for the Army. A, a Green Beret is a U.S. Army Special Forces job, description and title and, and branch. To describe other special operation elements, period, would be to describe it as Special Operations
1: Forces. Yeah, you're, you're talking about the, the two big differences, and you always see it in the media, is the media always makes a mistake, and they say a special forces unit, blah 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 blah. Well, we know that what they really mean is a special operations unit, you know, conducted a raid or carried out some type of action. So the I think the big the big misnomer is that um, you know people refer to special forces, and then they think Green Berets, SEALs, Rangers. When in fact, you know, I think uh, for the most part, we're starting to get this worked out that. Uh, people understand that hey those all the the forces in the different branches of service um, are under the special operations uh, name yeah, I think another thing is that people look at like com- people compare rangers to special forces. Yeah. But it's completely different, right? We well, get that a lot on our live Instagram feeds. People are like, "Hey, who's better or who hey, you know, there's a lot of friggin' uh, ball busting in the community about who's better, but you know, the honest answer to this to that question is that each of those units have different missions and they are designed to do different things. Yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, it's, you can't even compare it. It's apples and oranges.
0: Exactly. You can't compare a Green Beret to a Ranger who's in the 75th Ranger Regiment and who is a 11 Bravo, you know, a, a, an infantryman. I think, you know, when, when looking at education wise, a lot of people don't understand the path to getting the Green, Green Beret or earning the Green Beret. What are some prerequisites of, of even try, being able to try out for Special Forces?
1: Um, well, I think one of them is, uh, you know, taking the army physical fitness test. Um, I'm sure that there is a minimum standard that, uh, has to be passed in order to... It used to be
0: 70% in the 17 to 21 scale.
1: Yeah. I'll be honest. I don't remember what the, uh, the percentages are. I mean, the bottom line is, is that if you're not a fit, uh, person, you're probably not going to be, um, very successful. Another
0: thing was GT score. You had to have, so gt score is a uh, a portion of the asfab which is a measure of aptitude and then the gt score is like a technical portion of that where you have to have a certain score yeah the of G- 110 or above right The
1: gt or the the test uh for to to get your gt score is broken down and and it's like five or six different categories and it breaks down into like mechanical stuff and um, your combat aptitude and, and a bunch of other things, right? That measures basically. Uh, they take those numbers and then they get a, a GT score out of it. Yeah. So you have to have, you know, we look at that as kind of an aptitude because I could
0: tell you I've almost seen it directly translate where I've seen dudes with high high IQs or high uh, GT scores and they're brainiacs, but they're they're common sense retards and they just can't accomplish basic skills, but 18 Deltas are typically on the higher end of that scale, from my experience, from all the teams that I've been on. And then us 11 Bravos would
1: ride the fence at 110. (laughs) I'd Um, like to think that we're like in the middle of the common sense and the... Yeah, yeah, we're the perfect balance. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So uh,
0: that's a good point that just talked about as far as MOSs. Can you go over the MOSs?
1: Yeah, so um, on each operational detachment alpha, there is uh, an officer, right? He's an 18 alpha. He is the detachment commander. And then you have an 18 Zulu, which is an operations sergeant, uh, which is actually the team sergeant, right? He typically is the most experienced guy on the team. Um, next down the line, you have a 180 Alpha, which is an executive officer on a detachment, uh, warrant officer. So um, normally what you get with a warrant officer in SF is a guy that was enlisted uh, for a decent amount of time uh, with, some, with good experience, and then he submits to uh, become a warrant officer and and he helps the officer out on the detachment. And then kind of going down the, um, the MOS's on a detachment, of course, you've got an 18 Bravo, which is a weapon sergeant. Um, you have the 18 Charlie, which is a demolition sergeant. You've got your um, 18 Delta, which is a medical sergeant. And then you've got an 18 Echo, which is a communications sergeant. And then last, last but not least is your 18 Fox on the detachment. He's your intelligence sergeant.
0: Now, what are some of the jobs? Like, let's break it down by Bravo, Charlie, Delta, and Echo—the the specialties. You know, the core of a detachment. What what does each MOS specialize in as far as what they do on their team?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, typically, you know, by I guess by doctrine on a detachment. So, by doctrine on a detachment, eighteen Bravo is responsible for foreign and domestic weapon systems as well as uh, tactics. Your 18, Charlie, is obviously a de- uh, demolitions expert, but he's also uh, kind of the team engineer, if you will. Uh, your 18, Delta, is your team medical sergeant. Uh, not only is he responsible for uh, care for the detachment, but also uh, in a combat environment it may be run in a clinic that is helping uh, take care of local nationals. Uh, your 18 Echo is your communication sergeant. Uh, he's, well, usually we say the 18 Delta and the 18 Echo are like the 10-pound brains on the team uh, because they are smart dudes. Um, your Fox is an intelligence sergeant. Obviously, he deals with everything in the realm of uh, gathering intelligence and analyzing it. And then uh, your officer and operations sergeant, or your 18 Alpha and 18 Zulu, you um, you know, are basically responsible for what the team fails uh, or accomplishes. So everything is, is on them and, and you know, they're the management of the team. And then the 180 Alpha, the warrant officer is kind of your future operations guy. And uh, he also helps manage the detachment. Yeah, all these, all these MOSs
0: and all these jobs are intended to assist, yeah, assist and complement each other and help the detachment operate you know, behind enemy lines on their own. So they don't need, they serve, they also have uh, additional staff functions to serve in, in each MOS in order for them to accomplish overall planning, strategic planning to execute tactical level planning. You know, the coolest thing about SF that I've discovered over the years after just bouncing around a lot in different special operations elements within special forces is the fact that they do work and do foreign internal defense and work with uh, indigenous elements, which puts you, in many cases, behind enemy lines, which puts you with a force that's going to be leveraged with assets and gives you the opportunity when when unilateral operations might fail, unilateral is like all American operations, and leverages your capabilities to do combat operations. We call this, uh, you know, counterterrorism, foreign internal defense, or foreign internal defense, and it's kind of what—it's well, not kind of—it's what special forces has been known as. You know, special forces started really with the the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, in World War II, and when they broke apart, one element became the Central Intelligence Agency, and one element became, under William Donovan, became the Green Berets. Uh, in the fifties, the early fifties. So I, I think, you know, a lot of people look at Green Berets and they associate with the Hollywood version of us riding horses and, and doing direct action. But the reality is we're dependent on and leveraged as diplomatic officials on the front line of the global war on terror, which is a huge responsibility, you know, to 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 think that a staff a young staff sergeant can affect strategic level Planning and operations at at, at an E six E six level that's a huge responsibility that's put on those detachments that are forward maybe behind enemy lines.
1: Yeah, I mean the the responsibility is huge. There's a reason why SF training takes several years to complete because you're put through a lot of different scenarios and um, a lot of the you know the stuff that you do in the schoolhouse is obviously meant to prepare you to show up. Um, But, you know, today's day and age, uh, guys on detachments have a lot of experience. Um, You know, the the initial courses kind of just get you in the door and then the real learning starts when you arrive to the team um, and and have usually senior guys over you that that have a shit ton of experience. And, um, you know, at that point, it's like mouth shut, ears open, and uh, you're just taking it all in. Face down, ass up. That's how we like <laughs> to do
0: special operations stuff.
1: That's I how don't know song, where that came from. I can, yeah. can make a song about <laughs> that.
0: Um, you know, we just, you just mentioned the, the, what is known as the Special Forces Qualification Course, which is our pipeline. Can you describe some of the, the stuff that you've been through in the pipeline as far as the, you know, it's the order always changes. But when, when you went through, what yeah. were the big, the big courses in that, in that
1: training? So the, uh, when I went through the course, we started off with what they call small unit tactics, um, which was basically all 7-8, which is the infantry field manual for the United States Army. Uh, based. So it was learning about small unit tactics, uh, how to lead those elements, how to plan and organize uh, to carry out raids, ambushes, um, reconnaissance, and and all the different mission sets that you're required to do. Um, I think that lasted for like three or four weeks. Um, And then we would move on to, uh, for me, at least the 18 Bravo course, which was the weapon sergeant's course. And uh, that's where you're getting all your your technical skills for understanding how weapon systems work, how to work on them, how to fix them, um, and employ them and what their capabilities are. And everybody, you know,
0: during the MOS phase, during like unit tactics, everybody's together and their MOS is right. Then everybody splits
1: apart to go to their individual MOS training. Yeah. So basically, you know, we I don't know if we talked about this earlier, but... You don't have to be any specific MOS to go to special forces assessment and selection. I've worked with the guys that have backgrounds in the Army that came from what we call soft skill MOS MOSs, which were support MOSs. Um, but everybody gets a shot, right? Um, because there's plenty of good potential in the army. It doesn't just come from combat arms, although, you know, typically you see a lot of guys come from combat arms, which is, you know, your infantry units, your your armor units and other combat arms, uh, units that come to selection. Um, but it, that's one of the, the really cool things about special forces. It's a pretty robust group of guys with, uh, different experiences. And, and once that experience is put together is I think truly what, uh, what separates SF from other special operations units. Now going into the MOS phase, I remember we
0: learned all the weapon systems foreign and domestic, and we learned how to do like indirect fire we did i mean the full spectrum of weapons and tactics and everything
1: else uh what's next after the mos phase so after the mos phase for me was uh was actually language like mike said earlier that the the way that that course is executed has changed several times in the last few years but the idea being that uh, we would do immersion Uh, my language was arabic and then the idea was after language training, they would then put us into the Robin or the exercise that's known as Robin Sage, which is a, you know, a big exercise where all the MOSs come back together um, and then you operate as a team uh, in a simulated combat environment. So six months of Arabic, graduated that successfully. And then I was off to Robin Sage. So Robin Sage, I hear it. I hear
0: a lot about Robin Sage. <laughs> I've been there, kind of. Um, I remember Robin Sage, and it was a it was a pretty impactful. Uh, it's probably, I think, looking back on all my special forces initial training, it's probably the most significant training you could do in the military because it just involves so much, right? It's, I mean, it takes place in the backwoods, and rural neighborhoods of uh, North Carolina, and you're doing exactly what you have to do as a Green Beret, which is, you know, infilling behind in- enemy lines, linking up with a partisan force, uh, building an exo- auxiliary network of, of uh, you know, partisan guys and gals who could fight against the enemy, sabotage, subversion, all that good stuff, and you learn all those processes right along the way.
1: Yeah, the the end state of that exercise is that you have a. Um you have a capable fighting force that you can leverage against the enemy um, in support of U.S. goals and objectives. That's very doctrinal. Did you just say doctrinal?
0: That's very doctrinal of you, bro.
1: Doctrinal.
0: And then lastly, you know, what I thought was one of the coolest things, hence the company, is uh, Survival School. Yeah. CRC, Survive, Escape, Resist, Evade. C, which is made for high risk, people were in the high risk positions of potentially being behind enemy lines for pilots and also for special forces guys. What was your experience like in SEER school? Was that pretty impactful?
1: Yeah. So uh, obviously, I think each each service member that's been through that course uh, probably has their their own impactful experiences, obviously can't get into a ton of detail about the course itself but great experiences in the sense that uh, you really get to learn a lot about yourself, uh, you know, with sleep deprivation and, and not being able to eat and uh, <laughs> suck. And, yeah. And mentally how that impacts you. But I think the, uh, you know, the, the better part of the takeaway from it is, is how to function um, and, and stay in the forefront of your mind. Like we talk about a lot uh, to make sure that uh, you can't be exploited. The the course the Sears
0: survival course was started by uh, Colonel Nick Rowe who was held captive as a prisoner of war by the North Vietnamese when he was compromised at, and taken captive. Uh, he was held for five years and you know he wrote an awesome book on it called Five Years of Freedom. But he's one of seventeen POWs to escape enemy captivity and. It's a significant part of Special Forces history and also uh, shaped how we operate and how we conduct business behind enemy lines. A great book if you haven't read it. Okay, so going from from SEER School, question, do you get to pick your MOS and do you get to pick your group of where you want to go?
1: So when I was going through the course, uh, the way it worked was – I didn't get to pick my MLS. What they did is they took those aptitude scores. And then based off of that testing, they found an MLS that was suitable based off of your test scores. So they go, you're dumb. Here's an 18 Bravo slot. Or <laughs> well, I think it was like a easy plug and play at that point. I've been ranger qualified. I was ranger form. qualified. I was a jump master. Uh, I already had my combat infantryman badge. I had my EIB, all that stuff, right? All the bells and whistles, And I had served at a platoon sergeant level in the infantry uh, prior to going to SF. Okay, so uh, is the MOS eighteen Bravo what you wanted? Yes. In in the easy short answer, yes. I I I was probably with my background best suited to serve as a weapons sergeant on a detachment. What about the groups? Yeah. So pick your group. So the groups, um, it's mine's kind of a funny story. So it started off. With initially, uh, because I had Arabic, I, my initial uh, deal was I had orders to fifth group, which would have been fine. But at the time, I had a good support network built at, at Fort Bragg. And I also had some personal friends that were already Green Berets and third special forces group. And it, and it was a personal preference that I wanted to go to third group. So uh, it's kind of a funny story. Um I went or I was getting ready to go to SEER and I think I already had orders to fifth group. And so I was, you know, I was kind of always this way, but I said, fuck it. And I went into the command sergeant major of third special forces group, uh, just walked into the headquarters, went to his office and uh, asked to speak to him quickly. And uh, fortunately he was there. And I walked in and, uh, you know, standing at parade rest. And of course, uh, he did the old dog butt sniffing technique on me, uh, asked me a few questions to figure out uh, my background, um, wanted to know what, what I wanted. And I told him, hey, you know, I want to be in third special forces group. Um, I've heard a lot of great things about the group. It's got a great reputation and, and this is where I want to serve. Um, and so I would leave uh, his office and I would go to Sear. And then when I got done with SEER, I actually had a notice from the cadre in the qualification course that said, "Hey, your orders got changed from fifth group. You're going to third group." And uh, I kind of grinned and and uh, was happy about that. So that's
0: that's awesome. I have a similar story, but I think the uh, the highlight of that is, and I've seen it throughout my special forces career, is that if you want something, it's such a small network that if you have the balls to do something like. Communicate, yeah. Then <laughs> this little thing called communication. Yeah, that's because I think it. You know, I think of it from per, the perspective of being a sergeant major and, and thinking about a guy who came, who had come to me, and who would stand in front of me and say, "Hey, I want to be a part of what you, you're a part of." There, how could you tell that guy no? That's like being on the back of a helicopter and a dude running up saying, "I want to get in this gunfight. Please don't leave me behind." <laughs> and then you're not going to be like, yeah, go pound sand, <laughs> go prepare the chow. We'll see when you get back. No, you're going to say, get on the helicopter, let's roll. And so that's significant, man. I think, and I think I'm not, I'm not enticing anybody to go outside the constraints of what you've been given. But I think that's what makes Green Berets great is that we operate in what's known as the gray, which is we don't follow, we follow doctrine, but we understand the importance of operating in the gray to make things happen. And whether it's acquiring, you know, what we learned in special operations uh, on the Q course, whether it's acquiring, whether it's getting the job done or accomplishing the mission, no matter what uh, it's part of the culture, right?
1: Yeah. I, you know, the interesting thing about, about doctrine and and all that stuff, people always want to fall back or, or not fall back. That's not the right wording, but, they want to memorize it. And I think fundamentally uh, for SF guys, you got to know doctrine, right? But we find ourselves in a lot of environments where you have to flex and be able to work uh, away from it. Fundamentally, if the idea is sound and what you're doing uh, if fundamentally is sound, then typically you're successful, right? But you can't be so tied to it that uh, when things change rapidly, you have the uh, the inability to adapt. And I think uh, another interesting characteristic of SF guys is we work in this environment uh, that quickly changes uh, by the hour, or by the minute, even in combat. And, and we build this, this system that's, you know, that we operate by where we're able to flex and move, uh, you know, in a fluid motion.
0: Yeah. At the speed of war, uh, which is, you know, being shapeable and being able to adapt, like you said. You know, my MOS was 18 Echo. And I've told this story before, but I, I've literally was in student company and I had orders for 18 Echo. And it's because you were Asian. <laughs> it, literally, because, I think it was because I was Asian. They knew it. They knew I wanted to be a combo geek, but I didn't. I wanted to be an 18 Bravo. I was airborne and ranger qualified at the time. And it's just, it was like Kurt said, it's a good fit. And, you know, weapons were my thing. And I, I just was very interested in becoming a weapons sergeant. So I remember. I was standing in formation with my orders in my hand, and they were calling out MOSs. And I had like an oh, shit, at the crossroads of life moment. <laughs> and they they called us out. They said, all 18 Bravos reported to this guy. All 18 Echoes report to this guy. And so they called me out. And I wanted to say something, but it wasn't the right time. <laughs> and so when they called 18 Bravos, I got in line with 18 Bravos. And I remember this moment. We were standing outside of the cadre's office, inside Student Company, inside the building, and we were outside of his office, and he was calling one, uh, calling each of us one at a time. And I opened my orders, and I had a mechanical pencil, and a pen, and so I drew really lightly, and turned the E into a B, <laughs> and then I took a U.S. government pen that we had, and I changed the E to a B using my Asian art skills <laughs> and literally walked in the offices, handed him the orders and he looked at it and he didn't say anything. He, he, he looked me up and goes, huh, that's weird. I don't have you here. Huh? And so he started typing and, and he was getting kind of like spastic and I'm like, Hey, is there anything I can do, sir? you know, to make this easier? <laughs> He's like, nah, it's probably just an error on our end. And so he, he caught, we call it chalking, chalking something up. He wrote it on the board. And that's kind of the, the like writing a scripture. You know, it's like writing it in stone. He, he chalked <laughs> me up and put an asterisk next to my name and just kind of went with it. And I didn't say anything. And I just, I remember like through the entire Q course thinking I was going to get pulled. And they're gonna be like, you're an 18 Echo. <laughs> we knew it the whole time. And so I didn't say anything. It's crazy because throughout my SF Q course, I have did that. I manipulated the whole system because... When I got out of the Q course, um, I didn't have pinpoint orders to a group. And so when they were trying to manifest what my paragraph and line number is, which is basically a a directive order number that points you into a a specific unit, they didn't have one. And so I remember when I found out they didn't have one, it scared the shit out of me because I wanted to go to war and I wanted to be in third group. And so I went over to third group, uh, the battalion headquarters, and I actually went into third battalion first because I think it was just at the time it was the first one in order. <laughs> and I went inside there and looked around. And then I went to 2nd Battalion.
1: Hello? Hello? <laughs> Is
0: anybody there? <laughs> and then I went into 2nd Battalion and they had a display case. And I, I've actually, a guy a guy has sent me a picture of this. But in the display case in 2nd Battalion, you know this. There's a there's a a dude's prosthetic leg <laughs> in the display case. And right next to that prosthetic leg, there's a picture of this dude laying in in a pile of blood. And he was the HVT, the high value target they targeted and they winded up killing him on target. And then I looked around like, dude, this is where I wanna be, there's no doubt. So I went inside the Sergeant Major's office, similar to Kurt, and he started sizing me up and he's like, who the fuck are you? Like, what are you doing here? You're like a Q Corps student, why are you here? I was like, Sergeant Major, I wanna be in your battalion. And he goes, you wanna go to war? I'm like, I wanna go to war like now. He's like, well, Charlie Company's about to go to war, and when he told me that, dude, I like, I I get chills now thinking about it. I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> and so he sent me to Charlie Company, and you know, a couple of weeks later, I was in Afghanistan. It was awesome. So yeah, if you want something, especially when it comes to special operations, the the culture is you got to make it happen, and that's kind of transcended into our lives as men. I get what I want. I take it. <laughs> Um, I'll just, I'll, I'll just, I'll change it if I have to. <laughs> yeah. the gr- so the groups are aligned regionally. It's first, third, fifth, seventh, and 10th. And I won't, I won't go down the line because you'll never remember it, but there's, <laughs> there's two reserve uh, groups as well, 19th and 20th. And, you know, it's all regionally aligned to geographical areas or continents. Most more than likely, uh, I say more than likely because some of, some of it's uh, more than just uh, one continent, like uh, Northcom is uh, South and North America. Oh, no, it's North America, right? And Canada, which is North America. I don't fucking <laughs> Just Google that shit.
1: Experts. <laughs> Experts.
0: <laughs> yeah, just just look it up. It's uh, it's the reason why we learn languages, because it's geographically aligned. And, you know, one thing about Green Berets is, it's, again, comparing apples and oranges. A Green Beret, let's take a senior E7 in the SIF, for example, commanders in extremist force. That Green Beret doesn't just have 18 months to two years of training in the Q course. He has Sephardic, which is our advanced CQB course. He might have Sodic, which is our Special Forces sniper course. And he might have Military Freefall, which is an infiltration course. And then on top of that, a slew of other courses. So he has years and years of years of training outside of his combat experience and deployments and uh, team experience on another team before they can even get to that level operating. So I really I really think it's like beyond collegiate. It's like dealing with professional athletes in their in their uh, prime, in their industry.
1: Yeah, our stories are interesting, I think, uh, just in the sense that uh, Mike and I both served, um, you know, like he's talking about, on special forces detachments. And then later on in our career, we would both serve in the commanders and extremist force. And so like Mike's talking about, Um, typically what you get with a a guy that goes there is a guy that spent, you know, two to three years, if you will, on a, on another detachment, uh, most likely back in our time, the guy had several combat deployments and then, um, you know, goes to the schooling that Mike talked about and then ends up coming to the commanders and extremist force, uh, that has a little bit different mission set in the sense of, uh, it's a little bit more focused and, um. And then those guys start to operate together. You can get lost in special operations as a whole because there's a whole
0: bunch of different, if you're looking at potentially serving, there's a whole bunch of different MOSs and a whole bunch of different, you know, specialties and really jobs. The best advice that I can give for somebody who's trying to become and operate at at a higher level of special operations is, one, define clearly what you want to do 10 years from now. You know, if ten years from now you want to get out and get get your business degree, uh, maybe your MBA, then I would tell you a different path when compared to somebody who, uh, ten years from now, sees himself as a senior leader in special operations and might look at doing ten more years. You know, uh, special forces. Looking back on our career paths, went by in a flash of light, right? Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's over. I know it's, depressing. it's depressing. we're like crying right now
1: <laughs> no I you know we talk about this all the time and there's a lot of there are stressors that come with uh with that life you know I was married uh the majority of that time in in uh, special forces I'm still married now uh, my wife was super supportive um but you know there's a lot of time missed at home I've, I've had guys ask me recently a lot of these questions I'm happy to answer them um and I encourage people to reach out because I'll be straight up with you and so will Mike, you know, because uh, we want you guys to know the real deal. Because when you make the decision to do it, you it's got a huge commitment. Absolutely, yeah, and and it should be. Uh, the guys to your left and right will expect nothing but a hundred percent dedication, um, just like they put forward, and and that's uh, and that's the right thing to do. Um, but you know, all that being said, Mike and I, are, I think, are both in agreement that uh, you know the epic ride uh, was one that that we would do all over again if we had the opportunity. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I, you know, I even
0: look at my life now, you know, currently completely different than my military life as a complete different life. And for me, a new opportunity and chance to really start from scratch and, you know, try to be a a better man, try to be a better human being uh, and try to do something for our community and give back to the brothers that, you know, I spent almost a lifetime ago, it seems operating with.
1: Yeah. The cool thing, you know, when I look at all this stuff, uh, obviously, you know, I've been here now for a couple months with Mike and I work for Fieldcraft, And obviously we've got a long history together being former teammates, but the cool thing, uh, is being united in what we want to do. And, um, you know, we are, This is not about us. This is about making other people better and taking the experiences that uh, both on and off the battlefield and all these these different things that we've done throughout our military careers and then apply those. They're super uh, applicable to civilian life. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of of communicating how they are applicable to civilians, um, whether it's survival, whether it's mindset, whether it's something tactical. You know whether it's pistol marksmanship, rifle marksmanship, anything that we're doing, um, we really want to to help make people better, and and that's kind of the the mission statement um, that that we move forward with. Yeah, I couldn't. I think that's a good way to end this podcast.
0: Is you know with that mission statement of of what we want to do with, you know, it's it's really the whole reason we're giving the information that we're giving is because we want to educate people who who don't have the access to that information or who didn't have a mentor or a father or, you know, somebody to relay that information because, you know, we kind of went into it blindly and had to learn the hard way most of the time. Yeah. Which you're going to learn anyway, but we just want to help you out. So thanks for tuning in today on our podcast. You know, today, I hope you guys learned something about special forces and kind of what it takes to be a Green Beret. I think we just hit the tip of the iceberg. Uh, when talking about uh, special operations, special forces, um, you know, but it, it's like, like Kurt said before, there, there's a lot to the process of becoming a Green Beret and, you know, it takes a, a lifetime, what it seems of experience to be able to to get through that path, but it's worth the commitment. Um, just like a lot of things are uh, more so for both of us uh, taking that path and donning the Green Beret have been, Totally worth the commitment. So, again, thanks for tuning in. You guys can catch us on philcraftsurvival.com com on our website. We got a web store. We'll fill that web store next week, uh, hopefully,
1: and then catch us on social media. It's Kurt underscore Team Fieldcraft. Oh yeah, you get that down now.
0: <laughs> at Soft Survivor for me, and also at Fieldcraft Survival. Also, you can check our reviews on Fieldcraft Survival on Facebook. And if you guys want to leave feedback on our podcast feel free to subscribe leave feedback on itunes and on soundcloud all right guys till next time stay alert stay alive